Do take your Bible and turn to John chapter 13. That's where we're at this morning. We're in a second time here in this portion of Scripture, starting in uh, verse uh, 31 down to the end of the chapter, verse 38. And again, just to set the context here, remember it's Thursday evening. Uh, It's the night before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and he is celebrating the Passover with his disciples there in the upper room. And Judas, the traitor, has been banished from the room, sent out to... uh, perform his dastardly deed of betraying Christ. The top of the chapter, chapter 13, begins there, verse 1, with a declaration of the love that Christ has for his own. John 13, verse 1, says, Now therefore the feast of the Passover, or now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, He loved them perfectly, eternally, completely. Remember, I told you it's a love that knows no uh, quantitative limits. It's a word, uh, a love that knows no qualitative uh, uh, limits. It's an eternal love. It's uh, a love to the fullness of divine, the divine capacity to love. And that's the kind of love that God through Christ shows his own uh, out of the world. So it's just a wonderful statement to the, to, he loved them to the end. It's just a wonderful statement of the extent of Christ's love for the disciples in the context, and then by uh, reference to uh, inference to us, uh, that he loves us uh, uh, to the end perfectly. And then immediately in verse 2, we're confronted with that great contrast, the satanic hatred of Judas. Verse 2, and during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So side by side, as you often have in uh, John's gospel, you have great profound contrasts. You have the perfect eternal love of Christ for his own right next to satanically inspired hatred. And as we have seen previously in our study, the treason of Judas Iscariot was anticipated. Uh, None of this catches our Lord off guard. In fact, the Lord not only anticipated the treason of Judas, he declared it. He, He declared that it would happen in advance of its happening so that when it did occur, that his disciples' faith in him and understanding who he is as the Lord of glory would not be shaken to the core. So he tells them in advance of what's going to happen so that when it does happen, they can look back after the events and be strengthened and encouraged by their faith or in their faith in him rather than stumble over these events that are about to unfold in front of them because all of this that happens is part of the eternal plan and purposes of God. So that's why he tells them in advance of what's going to happen. Again, nobody knows that Judas is the betrayer. Nobody. He's such a skilled hypocrite. Uh, that even when, in the context of the Last Supper, even when Judas is sent out by Jesus, the other disciples still don't know the exact reason why he has left the group. Uh, they surmise different possibilities down there in verses 28 and 29, but again, still nobody knows the exact reason. And, and Judas, as I have told you, he's repeatedly rejected Christ's multiple compassionate offers of forgiveness of his sin. He's rejected mercy. And instead of what he has done, he's hardened his heart, and he, by his own choice, seals his eternal doom with his betrayal of Christ. And that brings us up to verse 31 that we worked our way through uh, last time. Verse 31 says, when, therefore he had gone out. Again, that's Judas Iscariot. He has been commanded by the sovereign to depart, to leave. Uh, Judas, this satanically uh, uh, possessed traitor, uh, the Lord wants him out, wants him out of the room. So that the Lord can finish the Passover meal with his 11 true disciples, uh, transforming it into the first Lord's Supper. So with the betrayer dismissed, the Lord can freely talk to the 11. So again, Jesus is going to be crucified the next day. He is the Lamb of God. And this is the last time 
that the Lord is going to have an opportunity to be with his own disciples. Therefore, he's going to pour out over the next few chapters, he's going to pour out upon them his love for them. So with Judas gone, the false disciple out of the room, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Spent the entirety of our time last Lord's Day morning on these two verses. Because with the formal dismissal of the betrayer, the formal dismissal of Judas, it sets off a series of events that is going to climax in the death of Christ by way of crucifixion in just a few hours. And I said it's amazing to see Jesus here as he contemplates his appointment with the cross, a death that is not only agonizingly painful, horrifically painful, but from man's perspective, it's a death that is the height of humiliation and shame. And from man's perspective, from man's standpoint, it appears to be a disastrous defeat for Jesus. But from the divine perspective, from the divine perspective, the Lord says that his death upon the cross is actually a point of glory. And again, the Lord makes these three statements there in those two verses. Jesus said, first, now is the Son of Man glorified. And secondly, God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, thirdly, he says, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And again, we went through the various ways uh, in which Jesus Christ is glorified at the cross. The fact that he redeems lost sinners, that he destroys sin, that he defeats Satan, that he pays the price for sin that God's justice demands. He purchases for himself in that act on the cross all of the elect of God throughout all of human history. And he renders himself in doing that. He renders himself in his life a sweet-smelling Savior and sacrifice to the Father. His sacrifice more pure, more blessed than any other ever offered. And he glorifies himself, I told you, as a willing sufferer. He's a willing sufferer. He willingly and cheerfully pays the price for man's redemption at Calvary's cross. He's the Lamb of God um, led to slaughter, not driven. Right? The Lamb of God led to slaughter, not driven. Everything he does there... Everything that he endures upon the cross, despising the shame, he does so freely out of love. And then we stopped and we looked at the various ways in which God the Father is glorified by Christ at the cross. God displaying his manifest power over sin, death, and Satan. God putting on full display his justice. Again, the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay that penalty for divine righteousness to be satisfied. The, the penalty of breaking God's law has to be enforced and must be enforced, although it means the, the, the slaying of God's only dearly beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw how Christ's death on the cross glorifies the Father. It puts on display the Father's holiness, his faithfulness, and most importantly, his love. Again, all of the divine attributes are put on display. They're revealed, as it were. Uh, the glory is revealed. Uh, the glory of God, again, seen through Christ at the cross, God's power, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his holiness, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his justice, his mercy. All of those attributes put on display, all of those attributes tell us what God accomplished when he offered his dear son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross to die as the offering for atonement. But it's the love of God that explains why. It's the love of God that explains why he did it. And again, God the Father was willing out of his love to send the Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to come and be the sin bearer. He came out of love for us, a rebel people, uh, to bear our iniquity, to take our punishment, to be abused, to be treated terribly, to suffer and die this most uh, 
ignominious death on the cross because God is a God who loves. And again, nothing throughout all of time in human history, uh, and nothing throughout all of, all of history and eternity really reveals to us the love of God so clearly and so dynamically as the cross of Calvary. Because it's only at the cross of Calvary that men are forgiven. It's only at the cross of Calvary that men are reconciled unto God. It's only through the substitutionary death of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, both God and the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, are absolutely glorified at the cross. I said when you go to verse 32, that really looks forward to beyond the cross, how God is glorify, going to glorify his son beyond the cross. Again, it's going to be after the death and then will be the resurrection, the ascension, when Christ returns to glory, sits in the exaltation or at the place of exaltation at the Father's right hand. That's what Jesus means there in verse 32 when he says God will glorify him immediately. God's going to glorify his son immediately. It's just a tremendous portion of scripture. That's why it took us an entire time to get through it. Packed with many wonderful truths is verses uh, 31 and 32. So Christ's anticipation of the cross, again, it's just a few hours away, and his anticipation of the cross is preoccupying his mind, his thoughts with glory, his glory. So rightly, he wants his true followers, likewise, to be preoccupied with his glory, because that's one of the marks of a faithful, a true uh, disciple. Uh, A true follower of Christ is one who loves Christ preeminently. He loves Christ, and he's in love with the glory of Christ and the glory of God the Father. Now, in order for the Lord to be glorified at the cross, uh, that that means he's going to have to leave the disciples. And and that's what he tells them very graciously, kindly, affectionately there in verse 33. He says, Little children, I'm with you. A little while longer you shall seek me. As I said to the Jews, now I say to you also, where I'm going you cannot come. I said the last time that the the non-believer... Uh, who rejects Christ uh, in the context of the Jews, but it's true of all unbelievers, they'll never go to where Christ is. They'll, they'll never go to where Christ is. They'll never go to glory. Like Judas, they're headed for eternal condemnation because of the rejection of Christ, because of the rejection of the mercy of God through the person of Jesus Christ, because of the rejection of the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ and the offer of forgiveness of sin that he gives to men freely and fully. Those who reject that will never be in glory. They will be in eternal condemnation. But to the true believer, Christ says, look, at the moment, where I'm going, you cannot come, but you will. In fact, the top of chapter 14, he tells them that in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you, that where I am you may be with me also. So so you can't come at the moment, but you will. That's the promise of God the Father through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, forgiveness of sin, eternal glory, and the presence of God in Christ uh, again forever. So the true followers of Christ are in front of him, the eleven. The eleven are left there in the room. He wants them to focus upon his coming glory uh, when, again, the Son of Man is going to accomplish redemption for every person who will ever believe throughout all of human history. Again, that is indeed the greatest display of the glory of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary. And again, all true disciples have an overwhelming desire, not just for a love of Christ, but all all true disciples have an overwhelming desire for Christ's glory. They want to see Christ honored. They want to see Christ revealed, Christ lifted up, just like rightly Jesus Christ does for himself. Now there's a second characteristic that marks out true followers of Christ. The true from the false, and it's a love for the brethren. A love for the brethren. It's the same kind of love that is marked by the love that Christ has shown 
uh, his uh, disciples. Verse 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So how do you know? How do you know? How can you tell a true follower from Christ or a true follower of Christ from a false follower of Christ? Again, sometimes it's not easy. Judas, for example, lived with these guys for three years. He lived with Christ. He lived with the other disciples for three years. And at the end, at the end, nobody suspected he was the betrayer. Nobody. Nobody thought that he was the betrayer, but he actually turned out to be the one who betrayed Christ. We know from the scripture that sometimes Satan sows tares amongst the wheat. We know that uh, Satan likes to counterfeit true Christianity because there obviously there's a variety of false forms of Christianity. We know that Satan likes to disguise himself as an angel, light appear to being, uh, appearing to uh, represent heaven when in reality he and his workers represent hell. So how can you tell? How can you detect the true from the false? Again, at times I think it can be very difficult to distinguish. Matthew 7, for example, there's a list of people who openly profess allegiance to the Lord, and they say that they've done many wonderful things in his name. Matthew 7, verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? But then Lord, the Lord says those most terrifying words there in verse 23. He says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The Lord says, ultimately, these people have no saving relationship with him. And he has no saving relationship with them. They wrongly thought that they had a relationship with him, but somehow along the way they had been deceived. Wearing a cross around your neck, going to church, being baptized. Those things don't necessarily make you a genuine follower of Christ. Outward symbols or even outward behaviors don't necessarily define the true from the false. But the Lord says here there's a way that you can identify who's a genuine disciple, who's a genuine follower of Christ. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you love one another. Verse 35, by this all men will know. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, I think for far too long, many people have bought the lie that Christianity is about believing the right stuff about Jesus Christ. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. Biblical Christianity, genuine faith, is not just an intellectual exercise. Biblical Christianity is about belief in the right stuff and that belief changing you from the inside out. Belief in the right stuff changing you, transforming you. Again, true biblical Christianity results in a change from the inside out with an absolute life-changing transformation of those who truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be deceived into thinking that Christianity is just about believing the right stuff because the devil believes the right stuff. And there's far too many professors of Christianity, biblical, or too far too many uh, professors of Christianity who says all you have to do is believe the right stuff. That's not, that's, not a, that's not enough. There has to be something different. Again, that stuff has to, the right stuff has to transform and change you. And in fact, it will. You see that concept very clearly in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. 
God says, I will, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. When somebody becomes a true believer, a genuine follower of Christ, it's because God has done something to that person's heart. God has changed the heart. God has given to the one who belongs to him a new heart and placed a new spirit within him, his spirit. Therefore, we would understand that person to have been regenerated, transformed, born again, changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Right? All old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Paul speaking to Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we also ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's right out of Ezekiel chapter 36. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 1 Peter 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 23, 1 Peter 1 verse 23. For you have been, you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that as to the living, that is through the living and the abiding word of God. It's the mercy of God through the gospel that creates in us and calls us uh, uh, into a new life. Again, him, God, placing his spirit within us. He doing his heart work. He uh, changing us, transforming us from the inside out. Again, therefore, the genuine believer has the spirit, uh, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit uh, in him. Ezekiel 36, Romans 8, as we're going through in the, in the evening. And if that is true, and it is, that now a believer has the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit here in the New Testament side, then uh, the, the genuine believer who's been transformed and changed from the inside out, there should be some marked evidence of that change. There should be some marked evidence of, of life, uh, evidence of the Holy Spirit. Paul called it the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. He says, for the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? There's evidence of life. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these flow out of love. And again, there's a lot of people out there who have some information about Jesus. There's a lot of people who have some information about biblical facts. A lot of people have some attachment to some kind of form of Christianity, but they're not true disciples and not true followers of Christ because they've never been transformed or changed from the inside out. And because they've never been transformed and changed from the inside out, they have no what? They have no love. They have no true love. Genuine believers have true love. Genuine believers, true followers of Christ, not only understand the facts concerning the person of Jesus Christ, but they have been changed from the inside out. Again, it's not about symbols. It's not about structure. It's not about rituals or ceremonies. It's not about uh, b- belonging to some kind of religious Christian kind of uh, system. It's about the heart. It's all about the internal work that God performs in the heart for the one who truly belongs to him. Because with that heart change, that brings a new disposition, a new desire, new longings, new hopes, new affections, new priorities. 
Again, a new commandment, verse 34, I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So Christ says that a true disciple, a genuine follower of his, the way to know whether or not you really are transformed, the way to know that you really do belong to him, that you're a true Christian, he says, if you love. If you love. Verse 35 again, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So true Christians manifest divine love. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because God first loved us. And that's evidence of the fact that we're saved, that, that we are true Christians. It's, it's, again, how we live. It's a transformation of our life. Uh, it's not just a theology we believe. Uh, yesterday, obviously, we go to the wedding. It's a very emotional affair. And, and as I stopped and, and said to people, I said, you know, when we shed tears at the wedding, it's not because uh, it's sad. It's because it's the complete opposite. It's a joyous occasion because we love the one we've come to support in, in, in the wedding and the marriage, right? And the only reason we love them is because what? God first loved us. Protoplasm, goo, millions of years of nothing times 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 nothing doesn't love. Inanimate matter doesn't love. Only people with the divine spirit have the capacity to love as God will lay out here and just as we'll see in a moment. The fact that we have emotions for people is because we've been created in the image of an emotional God, a person, not a power, but a person. And we manifest that and we demonstrate that emotion because God is a God of emotion. And again, we love because God has first loved us. Tried to convince people to think about that yesterday. That we're not the product of time and chance. We're all by divine appointment, created in the image of our God to have relationship with him. Now, we understand that there's a kind of love that non-believing people have. We understand that there's a kind of love that people demonstrate, a certain kind of level of romantic love, obviously, or familial love, brotherly love, etc., and so forth. But there is a kind of love that belongs to only those who are genuine believers. There's, again, a kind of love that comes from the inside out, a love that belongs to only those who have been transformed by the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible uses, the New Testament uses a unique word for that kind of love. It's called agape. It's a word that wasn't used in classical Greek. But this agape love, this godly love, became a synonym uh, with the biblical or uh, synonym with Christianity. And, and agape love is almost a new word. It's a new concept, a new idea in the culture of the time here in the New Testament. Uh, again, it's a love that men and women, by nature, uh, apart from Christ, know nothing about. The world knows nothing about agape. But this kind of love is the kind of love that is made possible again because of God's kindness. And it's a kind of love that He has shown to us through Christ. Galatians 2 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There's the change, right? In the life which I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And again, 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. It's a different kind of love than the world knows. One commentator says this about this word agape. He says agape is one of the rarest words in ancient Greek literature, but one of the most common words in the New Testament. Agape love is God's love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Agape love, then, he says, then is a love that is above all self, uh, is all sacrificial. It is the sacrifice of self for the sake of others, even others who may care nothing at all for us and who may even hate us. 
Agape love is not a feeling, but a determined act of the will, which always results in a determined acts of uh, self-giving. Agape love is the willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above our own. Agape love leaves no room for pride, vanity, arrogance, self-seeking, or self-glory. Agape love is an act of choice we are commanded to exercise even on behalf of our enemies. That's a great definition, I think, of agape love. Self-sacrificing, determined act of the will to put the welfare and the joy of others above self. That's godlike love. That's godlike agape love. And again, this kind of godlike love always demonstrates itself by action. Christ came into the world. Christ lived. Christ died. Christ rose again. It's action. And again, Christ's entrance into the world is the greatest conceivable manifestation of the love of God. Therefore, again, godly love is much more than just mere human sentimentality. It's much more than human sentimentalism. Agape love, again, is the kind of love that God demonstrates. And again, it always demonstrates itself in self-sacrifice, self-giving, self-giving action towards others. And that's the kind of love that God has called us to demonstrate towards others. But again, this kind of love can only happen by one who's first been regenerated, by one who has seen and understands personally the entrance of Christ into the world and why Christ has come, and not only is the greatest demonstration of the love of God, the entrance of Christ into the world, but that person understands that Christ's entrance in the world is a declaration of his own uh, um, uh, peril, uh, a declaration of his own guilt, a declaration of his own personal sin, that that's why Christ has come. And until a man understands that, then until a man understands that the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world and and the reason for his cross is an account against man and his sin, that speaks of his personal affront towards God. Until a man sees that God, out of his love, has sent Christ to rescue him in order to provide forgiveness of sin and reconciliation for my sin, the fact is that I'm guilty before God, I'm helpless and separated, unable to do anything to save myself. Until a person comes to that knowledge and understanding on a personal level, we can never love the way that God commands us to love. Never. We can never love the way that God demonstrates his love to the world. Because, again, the truth is every man comes into the world is under the condemnation of God. Every person who comes into the world is under the condemnation of sin, under the penalty of the power of sin. All of us are facing God's eternal wrath. Every man, therefore, needs to be born again. He needs to become a new creation, a new creature in Christ, so that old things pass away, so that new things come. And only then, when that internal transformation happens, only after God does that internal heart work, will he ever be able to begin to love others like Christ loved us perfectly, sacrificially, giving himself for up, giving himself up for us as he died for us. Again, that's the kind of love that God demands. That's the kind of love that God demonstrates. The kind of love that the world demonstrates is always a love that is self-serving and self-seeking. There's always something in it for the natural man. There's always something that natural man gets out of any kind of demonstration on a human love, uh, 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 any kind of demonstration of human love or love on a human level. But godly love is not man-centered. Godly love is not set on self. Godly love is set on others. Again, godly love is the response of God's mercy in our own life. Again, agape love is above all self-sacrificial. 
and sacrifice itself for the sake of others, even for others who care nothing about us or who even may hate us. Agape love is not a feeling. It's a determined act of the will, which always results in determined acts of self-giving. That's agape love. Now, again, at the top of the chapter, here, chapter 13, John begins with those great words again, the love that Christ has demonstrated to his disciples. Verse 1, having loved his owner in the world, he loved them to the end. Again, an endless love of love to the fullness of divine capacity of love. And because of that divine love placed on those who belong to Christ, because he first loved us, the true believer will indeed love. And because the true believer will love, all men will know that we are truly disciples, again, if we have love for one another. And again, a lot of people make professions that they're followers of Christ. You know that as well as I do. Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, sure I do. You know, but when you start talking to him, it's pretty superficial, pretty shallow. And although they make professions of faith of following Christ, they're really loveless. They're really brutal in their actions towards others. So again, the final test of who generally belongs to the person of Jesus Christ is the, the content of our character and the practice of our profession. Again, the ultimate question is, do we love? A, a biblical love. Do we love on a biblical level? I was thinking about this uh, this week as I was, you know, obviously getting ready for the wedding and all these other kind of things that are going on and kids coming in and stuff like that. We live in a time in a world where per- persecution of Christians is on the rise, right? You guys read those articles. People are persecuting Christians all around the world. And for the most part, what? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. You can say or do anything you want against a Christian. You can be negative as you want. You can... Uh, lie against a Christian, slander a Christian, you can abuse them, uh, you can steal their possessions, you can even kill them, and for the vast uh, majority, most uh, on the most part, nobody cares. At the same time, we live in a world where Islam is on the rise. And people don't dare say anything negative against Islam or their prophet, and the reason they don't do that is because they want fear. They fear because one of the chief tenets, one of the chief marks, I guess, of uh, Islam is to murder all infidels. They kill those who are in opposition. Right? They kill those who are in opposition uh, to their faith and them, whom they, those who they believe have insulted their prophet. One of the chief tenets of Islam is to murder. But one of the chief tenets, perhaps the greatest of Christianity, is to do what? Love. Who? Everyone. Love your enemies. We don't murder our enemies, we love our enemies. Jesus Christ himself said, Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the Jews taught. Verse 44 of Matthew chapter 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here's the reason. Verse 45, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Christ's command to his followers is to love your enemies so that you can demonstrate the fact that you're sons of your father because that's exactly how he's loved us. That's exactly the way he loves us. And again, in the context there, the word love is the, in the present imperative, so it's a command. It's to love constantly. It's a, lo- a command to love continually. I say to you constantly, presently, continually, love your enemies. And again, your enemies would be your personal enemies. 
Verse 44 again says, those who are persecuting you, those who hate you, those who are trying to do you harm. So Christ says, look, if you're going to follow me and you're going to make a genuine disciple, a true follower of mine, you're going to call yourself a Christian, then I want you to love these people. Again, agape. I want you to seek the very best for them. One writer put it like this, it's unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill. Unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill, that's what I want demonstrated. And again, he says, I want you to love your enemies. It's much different than liking your enemies. He didn't say that. Agape love, again, is love the will. Agape love means that no matter what the other person does to you, who's your enemy on a personal level, no matter how they insult you or harm you, we are never to hate, we're never to retaliate. We're never to exhibit uh, bitterness against that person uh, uh, or, uh, who, uh, or, or allow bitterness and hatred to invade our heart and take over. God-like, Christ-like, agape love means we want to seek the very best for our enemy. We seek nothing but their highest good. And again, uh, agape love is an obedient love. It's a, it's a love that, again, confronts and overrides our natural tendencies of anger and bitterness. But that's the same kind of love that God loved us with. Romans 5 and 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us for while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 verse 8, and God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, verse 10 of the chapter. That's the kind of love we're talking about. That's the kind of love that God commands us to love with. Again, even our enemies. Because that's exactly who we once were at one time. At one time, each and every person in, in this room, we were all enemies of God. And yet God has bestowed his love upon us. And again, because God has loved us, we can and we must love others. First John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Uh, verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So again, it's a love that's demonstrable, seen, obedient, God-like, Christ-like. When Christ said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Again, remember, he had just finished washing the disciples' what? Feet, right? He, the Lord of glory, had just stooped down, put a towel on, girded himself, and washed their dirty feet because none of them would do that. This group of self-centered, quarreling, jealous disciples who often argued, contradicted the Lord whom they claimed to follow, They had done nothing to deserve or inspire the love of Christ, but yet he loved them in spite of themselves. And he loves us the very same way, in spite of ourselves. Again, agape love is a service towards others who are in need. Again, it's not necessarily an emotion. And this is not only the type of love that Christ calls us to have towards our enemies, but this is the kind of love that Christ calls us to have towards each other. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So we're to love the same way as 
God loves. And again, God's love embraces the world. God loved so, God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. Again, it's a love that embraces enemies, sinners. That's the kind of love that we're called to demonstrate. That love of God towards other men because God has demonstrated that kind of love towards us. And again, the world knows nothing of this kind of love. But again, that's the love that he's calling us as genuine followers of Christ towards everyone. Again, even our enemies, and we realize that our enemies aren't always those uh, in in the context of the world in which we live. They're not always those who come at us with life-threatening situations. A lot of times our enemies are those whom we know who are judgmental of us, those who are impatient with us, ordinary people who are uh, self-righteous or spiteful towards us, those who disagree with us, those who speak evil against us, those who do want to do us some harm, at least on a verbal level. You find these enemies, if you will. You might find them at your place of business. You might find them in your business world, a larger association just in the place you work. Sadly, you can find them in your home. Your enemy might be your husband or your wife. Your enemy might be even somebody sitting in this building who calls himself a Christian here in the church. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way in the home. It shouldn't be that way in the fellowship. But the reality of the truth is sometimes it is. And Christ calls all of us to show the same selfless, self-sacrificial love, self-giving love that he has shown to us to show that love to others. Again, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another, even as I have loved you, that you may also love one another. So you say, well, how in the world is that a new commandment? Because people in the Old Testament were commanded to love. Right? That's true, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. The Old Testament believer was called to love God, right? Love God with all your heart, with all your uh, uh, mind, soul, spirit, right? And to love your neighbor as yourself, to love strangers, love your family. So how, how can this be a new commandment? Well, I think you partly answer that question because these guys in front of them haven't figured out love whatsoever, right? Again, Jesus knew these guys, the disciples. He knew they were still arguing with each other about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And again, these guys are always fighting for position, always fighting for preeminence. That's why he washed their feet, right? Earlier in the passage, he humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. Within Judaism, there wasn't much humility. In fact, within Judaism, there was a lot of uh, factiousness and animosity and strife and conflicts and separations. Uh, Excuse me, religious leaders, the Pharisees looked down on anybody who wasn't a Pharisee, right? They looked down on outsiders. They looked down on sinners. So this commandment that Christ gives is new in the sense that Judaism was loveless. Judaism only loved those who were like them, but Christ and Christianity isn't that way. Listen, the Jewish religious leaders never stoop to wash anybody's feet, but God come in the flesh did. God come in the flesh did. God come in the flesh took love to an entirely different level. And again, as followers of Christ, we are to love others as Christ loved us, just as he loved us to this new, higher standard of love in the world that has not been known until Christ came. So again, here we are. We're the night before the crucifixion. And he's about to bring glory to himself, glory to the Father, as he offers himself as the sacrifice for sin. 
And again, that's the apex of love. That's the apex of agape love, the pinnacle of love. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So our love for one another is to be marked by the same sacrificial love that Jesus has shown for us. He laid down his life for us. Now, as one commentator aptly points out, he says this, seldom will be the case that any of us are literally called to die in the place of a fellow Christian. But then he says this, but true Christian love involves a long sequence of little deaths as we set aside our pride, our preferences, our own sense of privilege. Jesus laid down his rights for our salvation, and we are to lay down whatever we think we are entitled to for the sake of our fellow Christians in the church. True Christian love involves a long sequence of little deaths as we set aside our pride and our preferences and our own sense of privilege. I'm not getting down and washing your stinking feet. The Lord of glory gets up, girds himself, and washes their stinking feet. Because Jesus laid down his rights for our salvation and a much greater act of humiliation at the cross than just the washing of their feet. And the writer says, we're to lay down whatever we think we're entitled to. For the sake of our fellow Christians in the church. You know, the world's very enamored with themselves. The world thinks very highly of themselves. The world thinks they deserve this, that, and whatever. The only thing that anybody in the world deserves is God's judgment. The only thing that we deserve is God's judgment because of our sin against Him. And when we receive of His goodness or His mercy, we should rejoice in that and be thankful always. And whatever we're called to lay down, Whatever we think we're entitled to pales in comparison again to the Lord of glory coming into this world, not just girding himself, but going to the cross, putting on our flesh, going to the cross, dying as a substitute for the sinners, us, the sinful. And here you got these guys in front of him who are always arguing, always promoting self. That was part of their culture at the time in which they lived. Because the culture at that time had no place or no understanding of Christ-like love, which is exactly like our culture, because our culture knows nothing of Christ-like love. Again, this love is new in the sense that it transcends the culture. This is a countercultural love. Followers of Christ don't follow the culture. We follow him. So as a true follower of Christ, as a true disciple of Christ, someone indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, we now have a new capacity to love. Again, Romans 5 and 5. God has loved us through Christ. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We have a new capacity. A new capacity to love because the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, the demonstration of the love of God in our life, the indwelling of that person of the Holy Spirit is the fact that we belong to him. 
So a growing knowledge of uh, Bible content really is not the primary mark of growth as the Christian life. It's rather not even an increased knowledge of the Word of God. It's really the test is, is your love growing? Is your love becoming more Christ-like? Because a Christian has a new capacity to love that the natural man does not have. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. A Christian, a genuine follower of Christ, has a new capacity to love that the natural man doesn't possess. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.1 I therefore the prison of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Colossians 3, verse 14, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men. 1 Peter 1, 22, Fervently love one another from the heart. 1 Peter 2, 17, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 3, 10, by, this the, love, by uh, this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Verse 11, this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3, and 16, we know... Love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another. That's what marks out. That's what identifies a true believer, a true follower of Christ. They have a love for the brethren. In fact, 1 John 3 verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He does not love, abides in death. Right? We, we know that we have a eternal life. We pass from death to life because we have a love for the brethren. Before God regenerated you and saved your soul and put you in the fellowship, what did you think of believers? Probably wasn't much positive. Bunch of hypocrites. I'm not going there. Oh. And then you realize that you're the biggest hypocrite in the room. God in his kindness melts your heart, right? Then you have a love for your brother and sister in Christ. John says we know that we have true eternal life, that we've been transformed, changed from the inside out, because we love those from whom Christ has laid down his life for. We love those whom Christ laid down his life in order to save. 1 John 3 and 23, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. 1 John 4 and 7, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Again, it doesn't get any more straightforward than that, except if you wanted to go to 1 John 4 and 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21, this is the commandment we have from him, that one who loves God should love his brother also. A new commandment I have given to you, that you love one another. Here it is, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. So again, how did Christ love us? He loved us sacrificially. He loved us humbly. 
And again, it's only the people who understand the love of God, who've been broken by the love of God, that can truly love others like this God-like love. Again, the world's full of selfishness, self-centered people. The world's full of hate, animosity, anger, vengeance, violence, but believers are marked by love. Because we've been humbled. Because we've come to an understanding of the love that God has poured out upon us to redeem us. We used to be like them. We used to be like the world. We used to be haters. But it's the love of God that has transformed and changed us from the inside out. So again, we don't just now look out for our own personal interests, but we actually look out for the personal interests of others. Right? Just like Christ. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love the ones whom Christ gave his life for. And again, love is not just in word, but it's action. 1 John 3 and 18, little children, let us love with word, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. So listen, a true disciple, a true follower of Christ gives themselves away for the brethren, just like Christ did. A true follower of Christ says, I'll wash your feet, just like Christ did. A true follower of Christ says, I'll bear your burden, just like Christ did. A true follower of Christ says, I'll walk with you humbly, just like Christ did. Just like Christ, if you have a physical need, I'll help you meet it. Just like Christ, if you're struggling with sin, I'll come alongside you and I'll encourage you to to victory. I'll, I'll love you enough to help sanctify you. I'll love you enough just like Christ did to help you get away from that sin. Uh, and I will be giving myself up for you, uh, for your soul. I'm willing to do that, to come alongside you. I, I will literally expend myself for you because I want to love you just like Christ loved you and just like Christ loves me. That's Christ-like love that always gives itself away, that always becomes actively involved, sacrificially involved with others. Love one another even as I have loved you. Love that is patient and kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It's not, never acts unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth and bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, if the church ever consistently loved like that, Think about the powerful impact that would make on the world, the loveless world around us. In fact, it was the early church leader, Tertullian, that made a comment along the lines that what impressed the pagan world of the day was, in fact, this very thing, love. He says, the the world says, look at these Christians, how they love one another. The world, he says, they love themselves. They're animated by mutual hatred. But he says, look at the Christians, how they're ready to even die for one another. Again, it's countercultural. The world can't work it up because they don't know Christ. And again, verse 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for another. J.C. Ryle points out this. Let us note, he says, that our Lord doesn't name gifts or miracles or intellectual attainments, but love. The simple grace of love. A grace, he says, within reach of the poorest, lowliest believer is the evidence of discipleship. If we have no love, he says, we have no grace, we have no regeneration, we have no true Christianity. We have a whole group of Christians who are into 
to gifts. I'm going to show how, how God's working in my life because I got this gift, and God is powerful because I got this gift. Whole another group comes along and says, "Well, I'm going to show how powerful God is because I'm so smart. I figured out this theological issue that none of you in the room could figure it out because you're not smart enough, like I am." And Jesus says, "Look, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have what love for one another." In his book, The Mark of the Christian, Francis Schaeffer lists two practical ways that Christians can demonstrate and manifest love for each other. He says, number one, you can do this by being willing to apologize and seek forgiveness from those you have wronged. He says, again, what causes the, the sharpest, most bitter dispute in the body of Christ are usually not doctrinal differences, but the unloving manner in which those differences are handled. Being willing to apologize to those whom, he have, uh, whom we have offended is crucial in preserving the unity of the body of Christ, which is something we've been called to, right? Be willing to apologize. I said that to the couple last night, keep short account. I told them never go to bed angry. You know what I meant? Go ahead, take a guess. Never go to bed angry. Well, I'm tired. Get over it. Never go to bed angry. Keep short accounts. Be willing to apologize. Be willing to seek forgiveness. Who in the world are we to hold a grudge against somebody else when God has forgiven us so much in Christ? Schaefer says the second way, the second practical way to demonstrate love is to grant that forgiveness. Again, he says, in the light of the eternal forgiveness that God that comes to us through the cross, we as believers should be eager to forgive the temporal offenses against uh, by people who have committed uh, these offenses against us. Again, he says, when we think about how much God has forgiven us in Christ, how can we not forgive our brothers? When we won't grant forgiveness, when we won't ask, when we won't uh, apologize, when we won't seek forgiveness, when we won't grant forgiveness, it's nothing more than pride. This is completely opposite of love. And if God's love has transformed and changed our hearts from the inside out, now we are able to extend that forgiveness and love to others because... Christ has demonstrated that forgiveness and love towards us, then we need to do that. And by this all men will know that you're my disciples. So if you want to have an outreach campaign, you want to make a big, quote-unquote, big impact in the world, start loving each other. Start loving each other. He says a church may be orthodox in its doctrine and vigorous in its proclamation of the truth, but that will not persuade unbelievers unless believers love each other. Schaefer says the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. Can we resonate with that anywhere? How's the culture? The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture in the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture. Jesus gives it a right, or gives the right to the world upon his authority to uh, 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 he gives the world the right to judge whether or not you or I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love towards one another. And then he says, that's pretty frightening, and it is. How does the world know that you truly belong to the person of Jesus Christ? How does the world know that you're a true follower? True followers are consumed with the glory of God, and true followers have a love for the brethren. That's how we know that's how we know we passed out of death to life, because we love. We love the brethren. We're consumed with the glory of God. The year's 1528. 
1528, 11 years after Martin Luther had posted his 95 theses on the doors of the church at Wittenberg, Germany, a young 24-year-old Scotsman who had just come to faith in Christ, name of Patrick Hamilton, was wholeheartedly, has wholeheartedly adopted Protestant theology and has been called to appear before a Roman, Roman Catholic ecclesiastical council. Fearing for his life, he has fled to Wittenberg to seek refuge, to sit under the preaching and teaching of Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. And after sitting under the teaching of Luther and Melanchthon, having strengthened, been strengthened in the Protestant faith, Hamilton feels compelled to return to Scotland to preach the glories of Christ and the gospel. Upon his return, Patrick Hamilton is arrested and he's confined to a dungeon, brought to a trial, charged with various heresies, and condemned to death by the Roman Catholic Church. It was on February 29, 1528, that Patrick Hamilton was burned to death at uh, the stake at uh, St. Andrew, Scotland. On the scaffold, Hamilton gave his servant all of his clothing and comforted him by saying, What I am about to suffer, dear friend, appears to be fearful and bitter to the flesh, but remember it is the entrance into everlasting life which none shall possess who deny their Lord. As Hamilton died, he died with these words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit on his lips. The writer says Patrick Hamilton became the first martyr in Scotland to die for his faith and for his testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. The writer goes on and says Hamilton's influence in Scotland was great. Some 15 years later, it's 1543, another Scotsman come, came under the power of the gospel. His name is George Wishart. And he too made his way to Germany. He too grew in his Protestant faith and under the teaching at Wittenberg, uh, Wittenberg and like Hamilton uh, believed that God had called him to return to his native land of Scotland to preach the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. Like Hamilton, upon returning to Scotland, Wishart was arrested and accused of heresy against the Roman Catholic Church. George Wishart faced this very same fiery death as Patrick Hamilton, and he died the very same place at St. Andrews in Scone. But before he was put to death, with his hands tied behind him and a rope around his neck, a chain around his waist, he addressed the assembled crowd and warned them not to let his death turn them away from the word of God. He said, I exhort you to love the word of God and suffer patiently with a comfortable heart. For the sake of the word, which is your salvation and everlasting comfort. Then he asked the crowd to help his followers remain firm in his teaching. And do not fear this grim fire. If any persecution comes for you, for the word's sake, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Tonight I dine with the Lord. The question obviously that needs to be asked is what causes two young men like this to live and die such a, an extraordinary way? Well, what motivates these guys to faithfully preach in the faith of in the face of opposition that so deeply affected them, even though they knew it meant their death, they would hold fast to the gospel, even with the threat of flames? The answer is obvious, right? They, they were more consumed with the glory of Christ than they were concerned about the fire that ended their lives. Why? Because they were debtors. Debtors to grace, debtors to the love of God. They loved the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who had saved their soul. They loved God the Father. They were consumed by the glory of both. And they're compelled, they were compelled to put that love into action. Steve Lawson says this. 
He says to live for any other higher motivation than the glory of God and the glory of Christ is to completely misinvest your life in this world. We too must be consumed with the passion of glorifying God and Christ with our lives. And too many Christians are satisfied with living mediocre lives, unmotivated Christian lives, lives that leave little to no impact upon this world or the next with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason is that the glory of God and the glory of Christ has never really ignited their soul, and the glory of God has never ignited or inflamed their heart. He says, this is what you and I so desperately need to have in our lives, that God would fan the flames of our hearts and motivate us to make every sacrifice that would be incumbent upon us to live exclusively for the honor of our God in heaven. History tells us that when uh, Wishart was condemned to die, under the Roman Catholic system as a heretic, when it came to the time approaching for his execution, the executioner knew Wishart. He, he knew of his kindness. He knew of his love. He, he knew of Wishart's self-sacrificing, selfless ministry to thousands upon people, thousands of people who were uh, dying of the plague in the area. And so the executioner was having a hard time being a part of the executioner, carrying out the execution. He was burdened with the guilt the role that he played in the execution of this godly man. So again, history tells us that when Wishart understood what was happening, he saw the expression of remorse on the executioner's face. He embraced the man and kissed him on the cheek and said, Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. And that's the kind of love that God calls us to have towards others. Those who are true followers of Christ. Those who are genuinely in the kingdom. The world knows nothing of that kind of love. But that's the kind of love that God is calling those who follow him. That's the kind of love that Christ is calling all those who follow him to have. A Christ-like love towards everyone, even our enemies. Because God, through Christ, has loved us. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this time in your word this morning. And to see this, again, divine standard of love, to love others as you have loved us. What a tremendous uh, truth. Uh, Again, another demonstration of your kindness, your goodness. As we said this morning, as we read the Psalms, it is everlasting. It just never ends. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. And may your work of the Holy Spirit continue to transform and change our lives, conform us into the image of Christ. And may we love each and every person in this room especially, but each and every person whom you bring us in contact with, with a God-like, Christ-like love, that we might tell the glory of our Savior, the glory of, your, of our God who desires to save men and see them come to a knowledge of the truth. We love you and we love Christ. And may that love continue to affect and infect our lives moment by moment on a daily level. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.